Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. On this episode of Most Notorious, the 1407 murder of Louis I, brother of King Charles VI. They are carrying swords, axes, maces. They're heavily armed. They knock Louis off his horse. It seems that his hand, one of his hands is cut off quite early in this this attack. He's on his knees in the middle of the street pleading for his life. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Pleased to have you here with me, just as I am very pleased to have back once more to the show, Eric Jagger. He was last on in May of 2019 to talk about his book, The Last Duel, now a major motion picture starring Matt Damon and Adam Driver. He is here, however, to talk about another of his books, this one called Blood Royal, a true tale of crime and detection in medieval Paris. Thanks so much for coming back on. Well, Eric, thanks for having me back. Uh, It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So before we get to Blood Royal, I'm so curious to know more about this film, The Last Duel. Uh, when does it come out? Are you excited? Oh, I'm very excited. Uh, it, it's it's scheduled to be in U.S. theaters in uh, October, uh, the mid mid month, October fifteenth. It'll be released uh, a little earlier in Europe. I think it's um, well. Actually, its premiere will be next month at the Venice Film Festival. I think around September ten or so, and then uh, it will be in wide release uh, beginning in October, uh, France and throughout Europe and in many parts of the world. So yes, I'm very excited about this and quite amazed that it's happening. Yes. Yeah, for sure. H- have you seen it yet? I have not seen it. I like many others. I've seen the, the trailer. Uh, I did have the, um, sort of a sneak preview in the sense that I got to read several versions of the script back when in the film was uh, the the the, uh, the writers were still working on it 
that would be Nicole Hollisenter and Matt Damon and, and Ben Affleck, uh, back toward the end of 2019 and early 2020, just before it went into production in uh, France, I think in February of 2020. And I saw what was probably very close to the shooting script after seeing an earlier draft as well and um, contributed some notes, as they called them, I guess, to that and a few suggestions. And so I, I had a sneak preview in that way, but I've not seen the full completed film yet. So how does that work? Are, are you kind of a casual consultant? Well, I was a hired consultant. I mean, they treated me very well. And I want to emphasize that um, you know, all the people I met or had dealings with in the film, among the filmmakers, uh, were terrific. I mean, I, I did sit down at one point early in the process, around the time, in fact, that the last dual podcast, uh, Most Notorious, that you mentioned a moment ago, uh, around the time of that, in May of 2019, I actually had a sit-down meeting with uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and a couple of the producers on the project, um, uh, Kevin Walsh and Drew Vinton. Uh, Drew Vinton, who works with Pearl Street Films, had actually discovered the book at a library and had pitched it for a number of years to his colleagues at Pearl Street and, and finally it caught fire and they, they ran with it. But um, anyway, I did sit down and we talked about a lot of, uh, for a couple of hours, in fact, about a lot of the story features, the characters, the history behind uh, the events and my research for the book and so forth. So that was, that was a great pleasure. And, and, and um, really I learned a lot, you know, myself just being in that meeting and um, uh, one of the amazing things, I mean, just as a detail is that they had, uh, Ben Affleck and, and Matt Damon had predicted the length of this film already, still working on the script uh, at that time. They had predicted it within minutes. Uh, they, they'd said, I think this is going to be a two hour, 15 minute film. And it, it turns out to be just their estimate was within minutes of what it's actually turned out to be. I was I was amazed at the professionalism of that. That was that was phenomenal. I know that they're trying to condense years of history into two hours and 15 odd minutes, but to your understanding, are they trying to maintain a high level of historical accuracy? They were just amazing about that. I mean, I spent months uh, doing library research, um, follow-up research, you know, on the book, um, uh, sending almost daily um, updates uh with in response to questions they had about everything from land law and um, legal procedure and uh, you know, taxation and how money flowed in the Middle Ages in this feudal aristocracy and so forth, uh, where Jean de Gruge may have traveled, how he may have met Marguerite, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, I have a, a thick file of materials that I developed and shared with them as a result of their questions and our conversations. So uh, it, um, I was very impressed throughout from the beginning, from my first, uh, that first meeting, uh, right to when I was reading the scripts toward the end, um, just before production began, uh, very, very impressed with the attention to historical detail and the concern with getting it right. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to try and revisit your book before I see the movie. But, but I've got to say the trailer looks pretty great. I think they did a great job with the trailer. And I'm very eager to see um, Jodie Comer, uh, you know, play this amazing role of this courageous woman who went through the crucible, you might say, 
in this um, this true story from the late 14th century. Right. Well, speaking of the late 14th century, <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, early 15th century, your book Blood Royal it covers a series of events that also takes place in medieval France. That's right. It's uh, it sort of picks up a little bit on the tail end of the last duel, which um, readers who are familiar with it may recall ends with Charles the Sixth, King of France, and fairly young at the time, still in his early twenties, having a, a debilitating fit of a uh, spell of of um, madness, um, mental instability. I'm not quite sure what we would call it today, and it's hard to know exactly what he was going through, but certainly, you know, this this terrible illness that befell the King of France and therefore affected the whole country. Right, right. So he's known historically as the Mad King, right? That's right, or Charles the Mad, Charles le Fou, the French say still. Uh, he began as Charles, Charles the, the Well-Loved, the, the BNMA, they would say. And he went to being, unfortunately, um, Charles Le Fou or Charles the Mad. So, so Charles the Sixth, he's in this book, but it's more focused on his brother, uh, Louis the First, Louis. That's right. Uh, Louis or Louis is is really a central character, and um, because of the king's madness, he becomes even more important in the realm in the sense that he's regent. He's appointed regent fairly within months, within maybe five or six months of the king's first spell. And the king has, historians have charted this over about um, the, 30, the 30 years that he reigned from the time of his first illness until his death, over 50 spells, something like 55 spells of madness. And some of these were just days or weeks long, but some lasted for months and even the better part of a year in some cases. And so whenever this happened, the court would say that the king is absent. That was their euphemism. The king is absent, meaning he could not perform his usual functions of, of issuing laws, hearing disputes, uh, attending ceremonies and so forth. He was absent. And in those absences, his brother, Louis, would take over as regent. He was in charge of the army, the treasury the diplomatic relations of France with other countries, including the, uh, the two popes at the time, because there was a schism in the church. So you had a pope in Rome and a pope in Avignon, and it was to the latter that the French church was loyal. Um, so Louis was in charge of all of this whenever his brother was indisposed. So Louis was controversial himself, right? He, he definitely enjoyed the trappings of power. Absolutely. He was a, an aristocrat of the old school, I think I say in the book, uh, meaning that he, as you say, enjoyed the trappings of power and prestige and, and wealth. He loved to build castles, for example. And he would, um, one of the one of the complaints against him by his, his relatives, uh, his uncles and cousins, his male cousins and his uncles in particular, because they also wanted power and they presented the power he had as the king's regent. And one of the things that Louis was known for, even when the king was lucid and in, in good health, he, he had great influence over the king. And he could basically sort of walk into the throne room or the, the, the chamber the king was in and, and ask for money and get a blank check, as it were, to build a new castle or acquire some new object of art that he was 
eager to acquire. So he, he loved the trappings of wealth. He had many castles, collections of statuary. Uh, he lived in great style. He would raise taxes now and then to support the, you know, to, to fill, refill the royal coffers, which had been emptied in part because of his, his um, expenditures. And um, he also, I don't know how to say this politely, but he collected women. He was a gr- well-known at court for seducing the wives or possibly the daughters as well of, of nobility, uh, other nobles in the French aristocracy. And he, um, in some cases, the men would sort of, the husbands or fathers would wink at this or turn, turn look the other way, but um, because they got money or advancement or prestige from this. But um, in some cases, he really outraged nobles to whom he had done this and had built up a lot of resentment, not only among the people in general because of the taxation, but also among the nobility in general because of this behavior. And then also among his own relatives because of his his hand, his, his grasp on the power. There's a painting, right? A fairly famous painting that depicts a woman on Louis's bed, a woman he has seduced, who happened to be the wife of a knight. That's right. That's a very famous episode from from uh, Louis's um, checkered life, and as you say, a famous painting came out of it. Uh, this the incident uh, is probably that of a certain noble named Albert El- Albert or Albert de Chauny, whose wife indeed was very beautiful and was taken as a mistress by Louis and in fact came to live with him. So it wasn't just a kind of one-time thing, but she became a sort of a permanent mistress. Um, and her uh, outraged husband had to undergo an even worse ordeal when one day he was summoned to Louis's palace and uh, was shown to a room. And in the room, as you say, was this bed and on it was a woman completely naked except for a veil over her face. And Louis was there as well and told Deshoney, asked him his opinion of this woman's beauty. It's a really sarcastic sort of question. And at that point, Deshoney recognized his own wife. And um, it was later thought uh, that he might have had something to do, as we may talk about later, with uh, Louis's murder. But um, uh, that became a, a famous painting by Eugène Delacroix which um, uh, depicts, supposedly depicts that incident. So this is just one example of an enemy of his, one of many enemies that Louis makes over the course of his life. That's right. Uh, As I say, he may, I mean, there are even reports that the king at one point in his, in one of his spells shouted that his brother Louis was trying to kill him, which was a, a really you know, an irrational thing, you might say, because when the king was lucid, he treated his brother with great affection. They were on good terms. They weren't, they didn't seem to be rivals or anything like that. The rivalries tended to be between Louis and his cousins or Louis and his uncles, but not between Louis and the king. But because of that shouted complaint by the king that his brother was trying to kill him, you could even include the king within that circle of, um, you know, people who had ill feeling toward Louis and it certainly included his relatives and included these nobles at court and people in general. There were also foreign agents who might want to do away with Louis because they didn't like the way he was steering French policy. As I said, you had these two popes, 
uh, one of them inimical to France, an enemy of France. And you had England out there, which had been conducting a long intermittent war with France ever since the 1330s. And we call this today the Hundred Years' War. It was not a period of constant warfare, but it was one of intermittent battles. The French had lost many times on their own territory at Poitiers in 1356 and before that at um, uh, Crecy in 1346. And as recently as uh, the 1380s, they'd been very active in Normandy uh, attacking the French. And they still held important parts of France as the fortress at Calais to the north and also parts of Gascony to the southwest. And so French, uh, the French court may have also feared, uh, and Louis in particular, may have feared um, foreign influences that were uh, hostile to him. There was also a very infamous incident that, that plays into the overall narrative between the two brothers that happened on January 29th, 1393, known as the Ball of the Burning Men. Yes, it's, uh, that is a notorious incident, and that would come back to haunt Louis later too because he was seen to play a significant role in that basically what happened was the king had gone mad for the first time or had his first public spell of debility back in august of 1392 and um had uh, actually on a campaign on the borders of Brittany, suddenly turned in the saddle drawn his sword and attacked his own entourage and reports are that he killed four or five men although the court tried to hush this up a bit but it, there were five thousand soldiers on that campaign. So it was hard to keep a lid on this sort of thing. He's brought back in a litter to Paris, uh, actually not to Paris, but to a, a city to the north where he convalesces for several months. But by January 1393, the time you mentioned, he seems to have recovered. And the court is very pleased at the, at the idea that the king has recovered from whatever illness this was and is back to, to his former self. And it's a proposed not quite clear who proposed this, but some friends of the king propose uh, a, an entertainment at a ball that's going to be held toward the end of January. It's a, a ball to to celebrate the marriage of a, of a young woman at court. And it suggested that the king and some close friends will sew themselves or have themselves sewn into costumes of flax and... Um, Oh, I've forgotten now. The there's a there's a very adhesive the tar. It's a tar-like substance that they're coated with, and then flax is attached to that to make them look like wild men or wild beasts. And completely encased in these highly flammable outfits, they're to leap into uh, the dancing uh, during the ball and surprise and amuse the guests. And um, because of the flammable nature of these costumes, one of the men uh, who is with the king, one of his friends suggests that Charles send a messenger to the ballroom before they go there, ordering that all candles and candelabra and so forth be kept far away from these men so that no terrible accident will happen. So this is done. And all proceeds according to plan. Uh, the, the guests are dancing and Charles and his friends in disguise now jump into, come through the door and jump into the midst of the dancing. And there's great hilarity. You know, women are squealing and mock fear and men are laughing. And uh, these, these, the king and his friends, his five friends are dancing and cavorting in the middle and everyone's having a great time. And suddenly Louis comes into the room. He hasn't been there up till now. And he comes in with some of his friends holding candles. And 
It's not known whether he, um, various stories circulate later, but in any case, what does happen is that he steps very close to one of the, the men. They're all sort of linked together with a, with a red cord of some sort and one of the dancing men and, and thrusts a candle near him and says, which one is the king? And the candle comes into contact with that highly flammable outfit. And it, within a few seconds, this man is a living torch and the flame passes to the others. Fortunately, the king has broken away from this group a, a minute or two earlier to go uh, present himself to one of the ladies at court. It happens to be his um, very young aunt, the wife of the Duke of Berry. And he's over there while these five others go up in flames. Uh, one of those men has the presence of mind to break the cord too and flee to the, um, the great vats of wine that are kept on hand by the butlers to serve the guests. And he simply dives into one of these vats and saves himself, but is badly burnt nonetheless. And the king is about to run back to his friends to help them. And his aunt says, don't you dare do that. The queen is uh, sick with fear that you may be among them. And she actually throws part of her gown around the king to detain him and so saves his life. But this terrible catastrophe becomes known as the Ball des Ardents or the Ball of the Burning Men. And uh, the populace hears about it that very night. They they are about to um, to riot in front of the palace and the king still trembling with fear at his narrow escape has to show himself outside to the crowd to assure them that he is unharmed. But the melancholy that he was supposed to uh, that this this amusement was supposed to cure him of descends back upon him, and um, the the illness um, creeps back, and he begins to suffer these spells again. So it's a it's a really bad day for the king, a bad day for the court, and another bad day for all of France. What do modern mental health experts believe? I, I mean, it doesn't sound like there's a consensus on the reason for his quote-unquote madness? Well, one of there's a lot of medical literature on this, and a lot of it is bracketed with the caveat that you can't diagnose anybody six centuries later, even with, um, you know, a lot of documentary testimony as to symptoms and so forth, because it's just, it's a, it's a hazardous thing to do. But one of the theories is that he suffered from porphyria, which I think was the disease that uh, George III later suffered from George III of England. I'm not sure about that, but I think so. That's the usual, uh, one of the theories at least. Um, schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia is another major theory about Charles VI. Uh, and he did, in fact, in his spells, shout about invisible enemies um, and run through the palace claiming to be fleeing from enemies. He often struck people who were around him and... Um, even tried to harm himself. And so knives and glass and things like that were kept carefully away from him. Uh, but um, there, those are at least a couple of the theories. And uh, there's been quite a bit of medical literature or historical literature about the king's medical condition. When we come back, the murder of the king's brother and the investigation that followed. 
Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst. Is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. So would you walk us through the evening of November 23rd, 1407? Sure. Um, There's a lot of background to that, so I'll just kind of approach it from a couple of different angles. Um, one is that the uh, that, that Louis, as regent, often visits the queen uh, in the part of Paris, still called the Marais, where she has a separate palace living apart from the king because of his madness. And so he's become a familiar figure in that neighborhood, riding up and down the street to visit her um, on the mule that he generally rides, which may surprise people, but mules were a preferred mode of transport for many great lords and prelates because horses could be quite intractable in the narrow streets of Paris, whereas mules were calmer and easier to control. So he's typically riding a mule when he does this, uh, as he will be on that evening of the 23rd as well. And so he's become a regular sight in the neighborhood. Uh, but um, it's a, it's a, it's a, Thoroughfare, the street, um, I'm not sure I mentioned its name, it's it's called the Rouvier de Temple, where the Queen lives. Uh, We'll just call it um, Old Temple Street, um, for simplicity. And it's a major thoroughfare in this part of Paris, on the right bank. And the Queen has a palace known as the uh, Hotel de Barbette, or Hotel Barbette, in that part of Paris. And it's there that Louis visits her quite frequently. And it's even rumored 
at the time, and especially in later years, um, that he might have been having an affair with the Queen. Uh, but that's not known for certain, and it's uh, um, uh, mainly speculation. But um, there is some strange activity that begins to be noticed in that street about the middle of November 1407. Residents notice some things happening, and at the time, very few people think anything of it, at least beyond that street itself and what the neighbors might be saying to each other. But this comes out uh, in the form of depositions collected later by this um, provost of Paris named Guillaume de Tignonville, I'll just call him Guillaume for simplicity, who is essentially the Paris police chief and commands a, a, a staff of, of scores of officers to uh, whose job it is to keep law and order in Paris, and also scores of clerics whose job it is to keep records, as with these depositions that are later collected from the neighbors and others in Paris who might know something about what happens on that night of the 23rd. So, for example, a tall man in a friar's outfit is seen inquiring about a possible rental. And since there is an empty house sitting in that street, his interest eventually alights upon that particular house. It's known as the house of the image of Our Lady because out front is a niche on the front of this house containing a statue of the Virgin and Child. And it's this house that uh, becomes a focal point of the whole investigation uh, subsequent to this incident. Uh, he rents the house through a broker. Uh, deliveries are made. Water carriers uh, bring great quantities of water for the horses that are being stabled there. A next door neighbor named um, uh, Driette becomes worried. And as she says later to the investigators, I thought that some bad people had moved, had moved in. Um, another neighbor, Jacquette, who lives across the street, several stories up, is accosted in the street by the same tall man dressed as a, a friar, meaning a clerical uh, person, a member of the one of the church orders. Um, and so it goes until about 8 p.m. on the night of the 23rd of November. It's very cold. It's very dark. Uh, there's no moon that night, chronicles tell us. And it's actually going to be the, it's, some reports say that it began to snow that night, so a big change is in the air in terms of weather, perhaps. And on that night, Louis is visiting the queen at her uh, palace up the street. And again, some odd things happen. A man finds a bunch of arrows lying in the street and runs into a, a, a nearby tavern where some of his friends are sitting, drinking, and shows them these arrows he's found in the street. A young cleric or clerk just coming back from work around 8 p.m. is accosted in the street by a couple of big men wearing black and hastily gets into his, to his house and shuts the door, uh, clearly a bit afraid of what might be going on out there. And it's around this time that Louis, up at the Queen's Palace, gets a message purportedly from the king that the king wants to see him. Now, it's not entirely clear what the state of the king's mind is at this point. The historians who have chronicled all of those spells, and many times with great accuracy, 
from pouring over the available records, court records, chronicles and things. It's not quite clear what his state was, but he had had a spell earlier that year, and it's not clear that he had entirely, entirely recovered yet. In any case, this message purportedly comes from the king to Louis, and he saddles up his mule and takes his men out into the courtyard. He's accompanied by five or six valets and pages. He commands a great army of men in Paris at that time, and he can call them to his defense at any moment, but he feels quite safe apparently moving about the city on a mule with just a few men as um, attendants. And so he, having saddled up, he rides into the Rouvier de Temple or Old Temple Street and heads south toward the river uh, with some of his men uh, going in front of him with torches and behind him with torches. And two of his men are actually sharing a horse. They're sharing the same mount. And so this little entourage or procession heads down the street. And they get about maybe halfway to his palace, which is a few blocks to the south. And suddenly a band of armed men comes pouring out of this rented house, the house of the image of Our Lady. And they're armed with, they're all of them, all of them are masked or hooded, which is by the way, illegal in Paris at this time. You are not allowed to go around um, disguised, but they are. And they are carrying swords, axes, maces. They're heavily armed. They knock Louis off his horse. It seems that his hand, one of his hands is cut off quite early in this, this attack. He's on his knees in the middle of the street, pleading for his life. Jacquette, who has been accosted by this friar a couple of days earlier, looks out into the street because she hears this uh, noise and sees him, Louis, on his knees in the street, uh, surrounded by this gang of armed men. And he's already bleeding from this wound, this um, loss of his hand. And she sees them begin to attack him with their weapons. And they just cut him up. She says later to uh, the investigators, it was like they were beating a mattress the way they attacked him. And uh, Within a few minutes, he's dead, mutilated, lying on the mud of the street. Jacquette shouts out the window, murder, murder, according to her, the, the deposition she gave later. And one of the men, the masked men below, actually stops, turns around and shouts back, shut up, you damned woman. Uh, a young man, a cleric across the street, opens his door at the racket an arrow flies right across his doorway and he quickly shuts the door. Uh, and within minutes, this tall man dressed as a friar shouts to his companions that they've done the business they came to do and it's now time to flee. And off they go, some on foot, some mounted on horses brought out of the house. The assassins throw away their torches and flee down the neighboring streets. And they are seen by many, many shopkeepers. For example, a salt seller who sees them fly past his door. Barber's apprentices who are still at work in their shops and who see this troop of armed men galloping through Paris with others running behind them. They claim, these fleeing assassins claim, to be the watch, 
which was this nightly patrol in Paris under the command, actually, of Guillaume, the provost who I mentioned earlier. They, they claimed to be his men and tell people to observe the curfew and put out their lights. In a few cases, they even strike lanterns that are hanging in these shops or near the door to extinguish the lights. And off they go into the darkness. And that is pretty much uh, how Louis of Orléans comes to his end in the streets of Paris that night. For a murder that happened in medieval France, it's, it's so rich in detail. We would not have that detail were it not for the scroll in which all of this, uh, all of these depositions are collected. That is to say, Guillaume, the provost, uh, within an hour of this murder, was on the scene collecting evidence, summoning people to give evidence, uh, to give testimony, ordering the gates of Paris to be shut to prevent escape, and um, uh, organizing a great investigation at his headquarters, known as the Chatelet, which is kind of a small fortress on the right bank facing the river. Uh, Today, it's a well-known subway station, uh, that spot in Paris, although the fortress is long gone. But anyone who's traveled through Paris on the uh, metro will remember the Chatelet, which is a a kind of um, intersection of of, um, metro stations. And it's right there that he directs in, in the next few days of late November 1407, this great investigation, which results in many, many summons uh, to neighbors and other witnesses like Jacquette, like Driette, who had been worried about the bad people next door, like the barber's apprentice who saw them fleeing, the salt seller who saw the same. All of these people, some three dozen or so, are, are summoned to the Chatelet. They are in each case, there are something like six rooms there uh, that are dedicated to the taking of evidence or hearing witnesses. And what happens is that each witness, whether it's Jacquette or Driette or one of these others, is brought there by two others, a questioner and a scribe. And the witness is asked to state her name, her age. Uh, and sometimes they don't actually know their their age precisely. This was one of these features of how time was so different in the Middle Ages, and people didn't always have a, an exact knowledge of their birthdays or their actual age. But they, sp- they state their name, their age, and where they live, and then they're questioned. Often they make a statement with follow-up questions, but in other cases they're simply answering a long string of questions. And it's out of these depositions, scratched onto parchment by the scribe as the witness gives her his or her testimony. It's these statements that allow us to reconstruct in such detail what happened that night from almost multiple points of view. It's almost as if at moments we have, you know, cameras on this scene from the viewpoint of Jacquette, the viewpoint of the young cleric across the street and so forth as evidence for assembling what happened in the days leading up to the crime, during the murder itself, and subsequently. Wow. So I'm, I'm guessing that many of us believe that thorough, detailed murder investigations are more of a, a modern concept, right? I know that this was the brother of the king, so it, it was highly important to Guillaume. But, but still, his detective work is very reflective of 
detective work in modern times. Well, that's one of the things that struck me about this story, because I started with, um, I mean, this whole thing began one summer when my wife and I were spending a month in Paris, and I was actually doing research for my previous book, The Last Duel, and we, we rented an apartment in the Marais, right along this street, Rue de Temple or Old Temple Street. And I became interested in the history of that street because every street in Paris has a often an amazing history if you look into it. And I found that this murder had occurred there, this murder of the king's brother in 1407, and that that had had huge consequences, that France had plunged into civil war soon afterwards, uh, that the civil war in turn had invited the invasion of Henry V, king of France. That had led to Agincourt. In a certain sense, Louis' murder had even set the stage eventually for the appearance of Joan of Arc. So there was this huge set of historical consequences that seemed to follow upon this incident that I've just described in the street that very night. But that didn't seem to be quite enough for a story. And it was only when I discovered the existence of this 30-foot parchment scroll, which still survives. It's not in Paris, incidentally. It's kept at a small archive in the south of France in the Pyrenees, where I have been to see it and study it. But um, that scroll and what it revealed about the investigation and how it allowed the uh, personality and the character of this investigator, Guillaume, to emerge, that's what really made me realize I had a, a, a wonderful possibility of a story here, a sort of true crime story in medieval Paris. And that's what struck me about Guillaume, how methodical he was. Um, other scholars have paid some attention to his activity, although I don't think his investigation of this crime has ever been detailed the way I do so in this book. But um, others have noted his scientific and methodical nature, the fact that he did not seem to have used torture at all in connection with the witnesses to this case. The Chatelet, which I've mentioned as his headquarters, was known for its prisons, its morgue, and also its um, capacity for torture. And it was a sort of a, a, one of those buildings that had a sinister reputation in Paris, and people probably gave it a, a sort of looked askance at it or maybe shuddered a little bit as they passed by, um, because it was known that if you were going to take in there, you could be tortured. You could have fire applied to the soles of your feet. You could be placed on some kind of rack. You could uh, be subject to a primitive form of waterboarding. Well, I don't know that waterboarding is anything other than primitive, come to think of it. But, you know, these things could happen to you if you were taken there. But Guillaume seems to have used none of these methods. There's no evidence in the scroll, certainly. Some of these witnesses do sound a little fearful because their very words in French, in, in medieval French, are recorded in, in this uh, scroll, which is probably transcribed from the original papers on which the evidence was recorded. Uh, and you can tell that, a sh that an innkeeper, for example, who is brought in with his wife, and one of the um, chambermaids in the inn that he keeps to be asked about this Albert de Choney, the nobleman who was so badly treated by Louis involving um, the woman on the bed and so forth. They are brought in to be questioned because de Choney has been known to have stayed at their establishment some months earlier. And you can, you can sort of hear in the, the innkeeper's testimony that he's quite afraid or the um the look the, the the simon the baker who lives practically next door to the murder the murder house um he's brought in and he's very quick to be he's very evasive and he's you can see in his testimony he's trying to cast blame on others oh you should go I'll talk to this chambermaid you know she might know something and very quick to divert attention from himself so you can see the fear the worry the anxiety sometimes or hear it in the voices of these people 
But again, there's no evidence that they were ever tortured or even threatened with torture. And in fact, what comes through is Guillaume's very empirical, very methodical, even scientific approach to gathering evidence. You know, he sends out orders that all the innkeepers in Paris be uh, required to send him lists of their guests so he can peruse those lists to see if there are any foreigners, perhaps, who might be of sus- on, in Paris on suspicious business. He um, asks one of his men to do a complete inventory of the contents of the house, the murder house, and he actually has uh, he has the merchants of Paris questioned in particular marketplaces about the objects that are found in the house to see if anyone can remember who they might have sold them to. I mean, it's it's a remarkable performance. And yes, it's very much like a, a modern detective. Now, I don't know if, if Guillaume was just unique in this or if it's partly a function of the scroll and all the rich evidence we have of this case, which may have been his method in other cases as well, or if, as you mentioned, it's the function of the the urgency and the importance of this crime. After all, it is the king's brother. But it is clear that we have a remarkable police procedural, as it were, in this particular scroll that we can follow from the before the crime to during the crime to well after the crime until he seems to have solved it. Yeah, it, it's especially impressive that he didn't use more questionable methods of interrogation, c- considering the incredible pressure he must have been under to solve this murder. Yeah, you mentioned pressure. Um, He was required to appear repeatedly before the Lords of France to give updates and reports on at least um, three occasions, the night of the murder and either the day after or two days after and so forth to to update them about what was going on. Uh, And so, yes, he was under a lot of pressure. Um, But I also wonder if he wasn't one of those people who was a bit more forward looking. He was very educated. That's not always an insurance against uh, stupidity, but he may have just realized that people under torture are going to say pretty much what you they think you want them to say. And I think he was really, I got the sense that Guillaume was interested in getting to the, the bottom of this. And later on, when it appears that a very powerful person may be behind this crime, that it's a conspiracy, this is no robbery in the street or something. This is no small time thing where some, maybe some more ordinary people are angry at Louis about taxes or something and decide to do him in. Uh, Guillaume has good reason to believe within two days or so that uh, this is a very carefully organized crime. It's been in the works for months. Uh, Some very powerful people or persons uh, and a fair amount of money are behind it. And when his suspicions begin to alight on someone who's very powerful in Paris, he probably begins to fear for his own safety and maybe the safety of his wife and his daughter too. So I think his pursuit of the truth and the gambit he undertakes when his suspicions come to a light on this this powerful person, I'm not naming this person because I don't want to spoil the book for people, but uh, it's pretty clear that Guillaume is not faint of heart that he's very courageous and he's willing to risk a lot, including his own safety, in order to get to the bottom of it. One of the examples of the great detective work he did was in rounding up a real estate broker who he had discovered had negotiated a a rental deal with these thugs. That's right. Uh, that's a That was a great piece of detection. 
because um, uh, there's this this uh, broker named Francois. I forget his last name just now. There's so many characters in here. I forget their names myself sometimes. But uh, Francois is a broker known for his activity in that in the Marais. He rents. He ranges. He ranges rentals for people. He's the um, um, Airbnb of his day, I guess you could say. <laughs> and and, uh, and months earlier, I think it's in May or June already, he's approached by this tall man in a friar's outfit. Sometimes it's described as having a red hood. So we can sort of track this mysterious character through much of the story and the prelude to the murder. But um, Francois is visited by this tall friar who's asking about a house. Actually, originally, he's asking about a house near Louis's palace. And we know from the depositions and can collect, you know, piece together the story from the depositions. And so could Guillaume, uh, of course. And Guillaume realizes that the interest in getting uh, a, a house, a rental house near near uh, Louis's palace shifted eventually to getting a rental house along the the uh, path of his frequent visits to the queen, namely Rouvier de Temple or Old Temple Street. And it's there that the broker Francois ultimately arranges this rental for the tall friar and the house in the house of, of the image of Our Lady. And so he, this broker, uh, is first mentioned by a couple of other witnesses who are visited by him as he inquires uh, himself about finding a, a house or whether their house is available. And so he becomes a person of interest. And when Guillaume's men track him down, and I'm not, it's not clear how they do this, but they, they find him and they bring him in for questioning. And he's another one of these witnesses who's a bit worried to be brought to the Chatelet. It's, it's like being you know, called down to the police station to be questioned. It would make anyone nervous. And um, we have the deposition that results in Guillaume himself is there. I mean, this is such an important witness. He does not leave this one to one of his two man teams. And you can imagine that with all of these witnesses being called and witnesses being cycled through these six rooms, um, Guillaume could not be there for all of these, but he is definitely there for this one and asks some questions himself. And it emerges that, um, Yes, indeed. Francois, the broker, has arranged uh, this particular rental. But when he's closely questioned about the his knowledge of the intentions or the the business of of this uh, tall friar, he knows nothing. And I think this is one of those cases where, if you believe the document, at least you believe the the scroll, the the testimony contained in it, Guillaume is satisfied that. Yes, this particular witness only knows so much and is not privy to any conspiracy, but he orders Francois to be imprisoned, which was no pleasant thing in the Chatelet. We have rather detailed descriptions by, by historians of these, these various prisons, and some are, I wouldn't call them comfortable, but some are definitely better than others. They range all the way down to the oubliette, a kind of pit in which you're dropped and into very un, unhealthy conditions. So, so Francois is kept uh, at least overnight or maybe for a couple of days in prison there in case further information comes to light. And in fact, it does. Uh, Guillaume later brings in Madame Fouchier, who owns the house that has been rented by the murderers. And again, she knows nothing about their, I mean, she was concerned about things like, would they damage the floors? If they were going to store things there, would they damage the property? That was... You know, that was her concern. She knew nothing about the conspiracy, obviously. 
nor does her um, grandson, who happened to um, uh, provide the tall friar with a receipt after the transaction had been completed, uh, receipt for the the uh, the rental. So when they are questioned, Madame Fouchier and her grandson Perrin, they are actually confronted with this broker, the Francois, and asked to identify him. And they look him over. There's no typical modern police lineup where the the uh, witnesses are shielded from the the suspect, as it were. Uh, they just confront each other, look at each other in the same room, and they identify him. They positively identify him. And so Guillaume has another piece of the puzzle, but hardly a solution yet. Part of the fascinating thing about all this is the public's perception of these events. Um, this is obviously a, a stain on the crown. It's the king's brother, after all. But the king's brother was considered a tyrant by many and a lot of people were not upset in the slightest about his death. Yeah, that's right. That's a, a really interesting kind of sociological dimension of the story is, is how people react because Louis was widely vilified in life. I mean, people from all levels of society were quick to criticize him apparently. And um, as, I've, as I've described, but after his death and amid the great funeral that follows, and which is described in the book as well, a, a lot of people seem to at least change their, their tune a little bit and to mourn him, maybe because they're expected to. But it's it sort of, I think there's a certain amount of sympathy, perhaps elicited by his death and the, the grisly nature of his murder and, and so forth. And of course, moralists of the time are busy saying things like, he was so great and grand in life, but look what happened to him overnight. He's, he's turned into... Um, you know, chopped liver and, and buried. I mean, you know, that's almost the, the tone of it, that, that no one of us is, is um, safe and fortune can strike any of us down at any time. And look, this can happen even to the greatest of us like Louis. So he's, you know, you get all these different takes, you might say, on his death and what it means and how people feel about it. But you're right. There are some people who are not at all displeased. And in fact, you can sort of tell this because Louis had a, a, a an his his emblem, his heraldry emblem, you might say, or his device on his clothing, shields, and the like, was a a a knotty club, a club that is to be say of wood with knots in it, and so something that you could um, potentially a weapon. It was a really represented a weapon, a club that you could beat people with, and and um, I don't want to give away too many clues, but they had some very dismissive things to say after his death, the people who didn't like him, about what had happened to that club. That club had been cut down or knocked down or destroyed. And they would sort of summarize their attitude toward Louis by making these these disparaging comments about what happened to his emblem or his device, which is a very typically medieval use of symbolism. Symbolism is used, you know, high and low in society. You have taverns with no the names of taverns on the, the tavern itself is not named on its sign. There's simply an emblem of it. The nobleman is not named on his shield. There's simply his emblem. And so Louis's emblem also comes in for disparagement after his death. So does Guillaume solve the murder? I believe he does. And it's not that the scroll tells us this per se, because the scroll breaks off shortly before the case is sewn up, you might say, and possibly because it did resolve itself so quickly. Uh, 
what what happens is one of these um, witnesses, a very sharp-eyed and 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 uh, alert barber's apprentice, remembers that some of the men he saw running by his door on the night of the murder. Turns out he didn't know that it had been a murder, but it was the night of the murder. Were wearing livery, and he describes white fustian or heavy cloth jackets crossed by bands, colored bands of of blue and green. Well, this is of great interest, I think, to Guillaume. And also of interest is the direction of the travel. If you map out on a map of medieval Paris, the sightings of these these fugitives through the streets, you can actually see that they're heading generally west and a bit to the north. And they make some sharp turns and head down specific streets that various witnesses see. And given Guillaume's casting a very wide net and getting people, uh, witnesses to talk to him from sort of far-flung parts of Paris, he can figure out the general direction of these, uh, the, the, the flight of these um, assassins. And that plus the livery, the, um, the details of the livery, probably enable him to identify a suspect. But a suspect, as I've said earlier, who is is very highly placed, very powerful and very dangerous. And what the book describes, um, and I won't go into further detail about this, but what the book describes is how Guillaume, without directly accusing this person, manages to set a trap that is sprung by something that this, this highly placed person says himself. He essentially gives away truth by what he says. And it's, uh, I think, a very clever ruse by Guillaume never to accuse this dangerous person and, and to put himself, to make himself possibly the, the immediate victim of, of murder himself, but to create a situation in which he traps him into saying something incriminating. Another clue for Guillaume is that when these murderers fled the scene, they flung these metal contraptions behind them in an effort to slow down pursuers. And, and these things were used mainly by the military. That's right. I, that's a wonderful detail. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, caltrops, they're called. And they are a military device, as you say. In fact, sometimes purchased by the tens of thousands by great warlords about to go on campaigns. What are they? They are these sharp clusters of sharp metal spikes. Um, sometimes it's as simple as just four spikes, but it, it arranges a tetrahedron, I guess the word is, so that if you, no matter how you throw it down, it always lands with one sharp spike pointing upward. And that's, uh, that will hobble a horse horribly or a man who's running along and steps on it. And so, yes, they were throwing these in rarely, fairly large numbers behind them because quite a few witnesses mention in their depositions finding these things in the street or even going out to look for them when they've heard that other people have found them. It's almost like they're hunting souvenirs of this uh, event. It's very strange, but uh, in in some cases they give them to their bosses or they hand them over to the uh, investigators. And um, it it is the case that these caltrops would have marked part, at least part, at least part of the the path of the, the, the part of the escape route. So when Louis dies, who fills the power vacuum? Well, that's a a really good question. Uh, The lords of France 
are the most immediate rulers. That is to say, the king has a council made up of his most immediate male relatives. The uh, These are the Dukes of Berry, who's quite elderly by this point, uh, a younger Duke of Anjou, Louis of Anjou, who's uh, maybe 30, 35, and he seems to be taking charge. He seems to be the foremost to Duke. But there's also the Duke of Burgundy, uh, who's about um, uh, mid-30s at this point, and he has recently taken over from his his father, who died in, in 1404, uh, Philip of Burgundy. This is so now John of Burgundy. So these three royal dukes, um, plus the Duke of Bourbon, or Bourbon, uh, uh, is is on the scene. And those four royal dukes together, Anjou, Berry, Burgundy, and um, Bourbon, those are the most powerful lords in France at this point. And they make up the core of this council that includes other high-ranking nobles, even Guillaume himself, and others who meet to talk about what is to be done, how France is to be uh, governed in the absence of not only the king now, but but his brother as well, his murdered brother. That will change, however. That's a very fluctuating situation. And in fact, as the as the four major dukes kind of rival each other for power, uh, they will continue to shift among themselves depending on who can control, who, who has the ear of the queen, who's an important player here, Isabel, um, although um, uh, uh, not in these particular councils at that time. Uh, the young Dauphin of France, as he gets older, um, has some sway, although he's basically um, uh, under a regency himself. So it opens up a whole question, really, the death of Louis, as to who will govern France and how the power will be, um, who will hold the power and how it will be used. Oh, interesting, yeah. So for people who want to get your books, they are everywhere. And of course, you've got a major motion picture based on your book, The Last Duel, about to come out. Uh, exciting times. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that the film is on its way out and that, that Sir Ridley Scott has directed it and, uh, and it done such a wonderful job of it. Uh, and I'm you know, grateful, grateful for that. And um, I'm uh, pleased that new readers are finding The Last Duel and also to some extent finding this, this other book, uh, Blood Royal, which it's been such a pleasure to talk with you about, Eric. Absolutely, yeah. It's been great fun. Thank you for sharing details from your book. Uh, best of luck. And I hope that this movie is a smash success and maybe Blood Royal will follow the same path. Well, Thank you for those good wishes, and, and thank you also very much for having me as a guest again on your wonderful show. Thank you. Again, I have been speaking to Eric Jagger. His book is called Blood Royal, a true tale of crime and detection in medieval Paris. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, Broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world, I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.